I'm Andrew Faust here at the Center for Bioregional Living with Permaculture Perspectives. Today I'm going to share a range of writings and the theme and the thought that connects them all is looking into how the industrial system, which is the, at present, I would argue, worst manifestation of human behavior on the planet and arguably in the history of humanity. Industrialism is the problem that is at the core of the epic scale that we're talking about in the world today. The scale of the problem that we have today is unprecedented in human history and is clearly a result of industrialization. And industrialization stands on the shoulders of colonialism, which is all about concentration of wealth into the colonial powers. The British, the French, the Dutch, and the Spanish were the primary players on the world stage in regards to this extractive, exploitive, rape, loot, pillage, and plunder everyone in the world who you can policy that has decimated Africa, Southeast Asia, South America, and anywhere else in the world that they can get their claws into. And what we have as a follow-up to the wonders of colonialism is the petrochemical nuclear-powered war machine of the United States and the G20 nations. And these are the themes that we will explore today in Permaculture Perspectives. Disentangling the web of deceit and looking eyes wide open into the past and with a vision into our collective future. So some of the books that I want to perambulate with you all. We're going to we're going to start with Mark Bittman's book that I enjoyed much of, which is entitled Animal Vegetable Junk. And this book is a recent publication, and the subtitle of it is A History of Food from Sustainable to Suicidal. And I picked a couple key passages. This book is uh, recent, just came out, Animal Vegetable Junk, Mark Bittman, copyright 2021. And we're going to skip ahead to a chapter called 
creating famine. And I want to pull out a thread here that Bittman has inspired me to take of looking at the roots, the fundamental essence of our short-term recollection when it comes to our collective cultural recollection of history tends to not be very long in its view. I found some of the numbers that he shares here to be insightful and informative that I had never grasped the degree to which the economy of India and China were gutted and destroyed by the British Empire. So here we go. This is from page 58, Animal Vegetable Junk. Like many, or even most, white, middle-class children of the 50s and 60s, I was told to finish my dinner because, quote, children are starving in India or China. No doubt some were, just as some were within miles or blocks of our apartment. But as we have already seen, famine was hardly unique to Asia, nor historically was wealth confined to the West. And this is the salient theme here that I want to highlight for you. Wealth was not confined to the West. In 1700, China and India each had just over 20% of the global GDP. That was the equivalent of the entire continent of Europe. This is in 1700, China. GDP, global contribution, the equivalent of the entire continent of Europe. By 1890, however, Europe's GDP had doubled. Those of China and India had halved. Before the establishment of the Raj, many regions of India had complex and effective systems for regulating their food supply. Along with legal systems that adapted to local farming styles, some areas were more productive than others, of course, but there was a track record of caring for peasant populations. One Bengali norm that survives today is to give food to those in need ungrudgingly. Until the British East India Company, called by the historian William Dalyrimple in his book The Anarchy, the first great multinational corporation and the first to run amok, took over in the late 17th century. The Mughal Empire was a paradigm of wealth. Not only was its GDP among the world's highest, it also controlled a quarter of the global manufacturing market. That's a quarter of the global manufacturing market controlled 
by India. Mostly through clothing shipped to Europe. Its workforce largely comprised artisan weavers who had more economic power and enjoyed higher standards of living than European peasants and industrial factory workers. But Britain was more interested in non-industrial colonies that would simply supply raw material for the motherland's own factories. So it forced India to deindustrialize, levying crushing taxes on India's manufactured products to protect Lancashire's growing textile industry. As a result, India's share of the global manufacturing market fell to less than 3% by 1880, a theft of value that in today's currency would be worth trillions of dollars. This isn't just a numbers game. In the two millennia preceding English colonization, only 17 famines were recorded in India. During the hundred or so years of English rule, there were 31. Put another way, India went from averaging less than one famine per century to averaging 30 per century or one every three years. The half century of 1850 to 1900 saw more famines in India than in any 50-year period in its history. And the famines were twice as deadly as anything that came before. The catastrophe stemmed from a performance not unlike Britain's in Ireland, referring to the Irish potato famine. After establishing the Raj, the British swiftly and brutally restructured the peasant countryside, naming the government de facto landlord and forcing farmers to grow only cotton. The rational response from those farmers was to produce as much cotton as possible, even though cotton prices were low and unpredictable. Production soared increasing almost fourfold between 1791 and 1860. In Griggs's Agricultural Systems of the World, the country became the world's second largest producer of raw cotton, growing three times more than any area besides the United States. Once again, underscoring why one of our favorite terms to characterize this crop is cotton kills and that is in many senses this offered farmers no guarantee of income however the british wanted a steady supply of cotton available in india but they bought and traded it only when it benefited them for example prices boomed in the lead up to the american civil war when britain feared disruption of american supply but when the war ended in 1865. Britain resumed purchasing its cheap cotton from the American South. Prices all across the globe crashed and millions in India went hungry.
Rulers and subjects alike in India knew that the state's role in times of disaster should be to help the struggling. In China, that tradition began with the imperial dynasties in 221 BCE. The Confucian philosopher Mengzi wrote that blaming starvation on a bad harvest was like, quote, killing a man by running him through while saying all the time, it is none of my doing, it is the fault of the weapon. The Qing Dynasty, which ruled China from 1644 to 1912, saw peasant prosperity as central to the stability of the empire. Generally, land ownership was high and inequality low. The state trained farmers in irrigation and soil maintenance, and it regulated the price of wheat to guarantee that the market wouldn't be flooded. It also purchased surplus storing grain for distribution during shortages and giving it to people for free. Far more effective than waiting for invisible hands to do their work. Referring there to the catastrophic assumption of Adam Smith that the invisible hand of the market will address famine and starvation when in fact the only thing that will address them is human empathy and compassion. That system, one of compassion, was all but destroyed by the new globalized economy engineered by the United Kingdom. The British demand for Chinese tea was obsessive. Caffeine, as you probably know from experience, is addictive. More than a luxury, tea was considered by the colonialists to be an engine for productivity. It kept the new industrial workforce caffeinated and was an excellent vehicle for the consumption of sugar. Perhaps just as important, 10% of the British government's budget came from import taxes on tea. So as you can see, this is a very fascinating history when we get into food, plants, and the global economy. Let's jump forward to hearing a little more about famine and the history of it and the role that colonialism played in exacerbating it. It should come as no surprise that colonization decimated social structures and orchestrated famines on the African continent as well. Before Europeans arrived in West Africa, Farmers grew a dozen different life-sustaining grains, among them millet, teff, sorghum, and phonio, as well as yams and a wide variety of leafy greens. These plants were indigenous, hardy, and tolerant of temperature change, drought, and even infertile soil. For example, an agricultural region Surrounding Kumasi, Ghana's second largest city, did well even during a drought that began in the 15th century and lasted almost 200 years. Now I ask you, gentle listener, is there any example of an industrial mode of production that can weather a 200-year-long 
drought? No, there is not. Once again showing the superiority of adaptive and traditional methods of farming and growing. Archaeologists have determined that there was no shortage of food or shift in diet during that period. This is a 200-year drought we're talking about in the 15th century in Kumasi, Ghana. The combination of indigenous crops and a strong regional economy of craftspeople trading iron, pottery, and cloth had created a robust society with comfortable food security that continued to thrive despite generations of challenging weather. And this, again, I would suggest to underscore the message here, this is a clear example of the path forward for creating food security for ourselves today. It is about a regional economy. It is about local craftspeople. And it is based in indigenous crops and looking at what has worked over time. But Europeans, beginning with the Portuguese in the mid-15th century, destroyed those regional networks in favor of global trade. And again, this is the fundamental first step of destruction that we are still wallowing in the wake of. This destruction of regional networks in the favor of global trade. The imperialists brought heavy taxes and a preference for mining, urban development, and monoculture. The three death knells for local autonomy. Mining, urban development, and monoculture. In this case of cocoa and coffee. As in China and India, these luxury goods began to supplant the indigenous life-sustaining crops, which the invaders categorized as, quote, cattle feed. This took a heavy toll on human health. Diets worsened, and it became increasingly difficult to put food aside for emergencies. The environment suffered too, farmland began to shrink, and the desert grew. The result was a society that went from being healthier and less famine-prone than its European contemporaries in pre-invasion days to experiencing chronic hunger. Nor was this the only example. The French forced the planting of peanuts in Senegal, making farmers increasingly dependent on imports of rice, their traditional staple. Often this rice came from French Indochina, a convenient and profitable arrangement for France. As rice prices increased, the Senegalese were compelled to plant more and more peanuts, sacrificing soil quality in the process. The French were also responsible for famine in Niger in 1931 and in Gabon from 1924 to 1926, as usual, they blamed the crisis on those who were starving. David Arnold recounts that, quote, French officials characteristically blamed African idleness, apathy, and fatalism 
colonizers and invaders fostered ideas of the African continent as an unexplored wild land filled with starving uncivilized people just as they had fostered ideas of indigenous Americans as wild hunters and nomads. Globally, as Ivagalos Valianatos writes, the violence of the old colonial system keeps resurfacing in the bleak faces of malnutrition and hunger. The British exploited the American colonies as well, which of course was the main reason for the Revolutionary War. But unlike India, North America was wide open for a kind of internal colonization. In the wake of the genocide of its indigenous people, there was virtually unlimited land and a burgeoning market. From colonial days until well after the Civil War, there were several ways in which a native-born and immigrant American could readily acquire land as long as they were white and male. And so that story continues. You can pick up the line on that in Animal, Vegetable, and Junk by Mark Bittman. <clears throat> now we're going to fast forward ahead here and pick a section from page 120, Dust and Depression. From the end of World War I to the Depression era to the New Deal, government policies were of little to no help to farmers, but they were especially unhelpful, even actively destructive, for small-scale southern farmers, tenant farmers, and sharecroppers, especially those who were the descendants of enslaved people. In fact, the worse you were treated by American policy in the 18th and 19th centuries, the worse you were treated in the 20th. For example, the Social Security Act of 1935 and the Fair Labor Standards Act of 1938 both excluded agricultural and domestic thanks to influential Southern Democrats who refused to protect the black people working in those sectors. This meant that the New Deal disproportionately excluded people of color from the most vital government protections, social security, the right to collective bargaining and worker organizing, the minimum wage, the maximum work week and time and a half for overtime, and the ban on child labor. States were even allowed to set a lower minimum wage for tipped workers, a direct affront to railway porters and maids, almost all of whom were former slaves or their children. That policy shamefully continues to this day. Historians have long acknowledged that enslaved people, freed men, and their descendants built the cotton industry and the rest of southern agriculture, and therefore a large part and therefore a large part the wealth of the United States. Yet despite post Civil War promises, black Americans were still, for the most part, not given the opportunity to become landowners as white Americans were. Rather, they were largely pigeonholed as tenant farmers and sharecroppers, struggling to make rent and often forced back into the cotton-growing business. 
Cotton is a food as well as a fabric crop. Its seed is used for oil, animal fodder, and fertilizer, and there's a 1,500-mile-long stretch from southeast Texas to southern Virginia that's known as the Cotton Belt. Yet another huge expanse of rich American soil devoted almost entirely to one crop. In the 30s, this area, essentially the southeastern quadrant of the country, was home to just a quarter of the national population, or almost half of the rural population. At the time, half of the farmers in America were southern, and about a quarter of those were black. That the Department of Agriculture served big business better than small-time farmers was hardly news. Nor was it surprising that black farmers suffered most under the department's policies. Although the USDA is a federal agency, its programs are administered locally, often through county extension offices. And local governments in the South were blatantly, even proudly racist. So, when New Deal farm programs actually did step in to save farms, they were typically conveniently white-owned farms. Black farmers were shut out, denied loans, deprived of information about farm-saving programs, and, of course, excluded from management positions in local USDA offices. African Americans faced several other unique challenges. Commodity support programs increased the price of farmland, creating a further barrier to ownership for non-landowning blacks, Racist storekeepers and manufacturers' representatives upcharged them for equipment, seeds, and chemicals, while crop buyers bid low on black farmers' harvests. What's more, as they were typically laborers instead of landowners, a few black farmers, few black farmers received any of the cash incentives associated with cutting back production, and predictably, Blacks were still discriminated against even as farming began to recover. Between 1930 and 1935, the number of white tenant farmers increased by 146,000, a 10% increase over just five years. Meanwhile, the number of non-white tenant farmers declined by 45,000, a 10% decrease in their ranks. Okay, so important historical perspectives on land use patterns, access to land, the inequities of the American economy, and our farming communities, and why the black community in particular is so under-present in our agricultural sector, Purposeful discrimination is the answer. We're going to look at a chapter and a section here, still animal vegetable junk. A lot of good stuff in this that I wanted to pull out for you. This is from page 158, Vitamania and the Farm Problem. The role of home economics won further support in 1923 when the USDA established the Bureau of Home Economics, BHE, 
Congress charged the Bureau with helping to create markets for agricultural products while supplying home demonstration agents who worked for the Cooperative Extension, renamed Cooperative Extension Service in Agriculture and Home Economics, with ways to improve rural home life. This could mean anything from informal get-togethers to training in scientific methods of cooking, childcare, and farm management. Shortly, land-grant colleges were churning out trained instructors to teach housewives about the modern food system. The BHE had an identity issue. It was trying to educate young consumers about nutrition while supporting unhealthy post-agricultural products that encouraged home cooks to ignore real nutritious foods. This conflicting mission mirrored that of the USDA as a whole. The agency was meant to promote healthier foods, all while supporting an industry that systemically degraded food quality. It would be naive to think that the USDA was equally devoted to these dueling missions. Its first loyalty has always been to the ag food industry and to destroying any knowledge that would jeopardize the industry's profits. And that tendency would be enhanced by another world war. Three times as many Americans served in the military during World War II as for its predecessor. As mostly men shipped off for combat, women tended to work on farms and factories and in offices. Nevertheless, production continued to climb, and relative to most European and Asian countries, the United States barely suffered. In fact, it thrived. Wartime production ended the Depression, and there were virtually no limits to the methods in America's disposal. Fossil fuel extraction skyrocketed as did factory production, especially of munitions and weaponry. War was raging and everything went into winning it. The causes of World War II are so complex that historians still argue about them, but the role of food in the territorial ambitions of Japan, Italy, and German is often bypassed. It's a surprising omission, since it's no secret that empty stomachs often drive ideology. The German and Japanese governments were justifiably concerned about their land's ability to feed their growing populations, especially relative to the empires of the classic imperial countries of Western Europe and, of course, to the impressive land masses of both the United States and the Soviet Union. So a lot here. I'm going to wrap up this reading from... Bittman's book and jump into some other sections here. We're on page 290, conclusion. The food system needs work, and there's no user manual. Determining the way forward is a team effort, one that must be guided by those whose voices have been discounted, women, people of color, and the formerly colonized, among others. This is true of not just food. A survivable society must be cooperative. Survivable? How about a beautiful, celebratory society? 
A survivable society must be cooperative with goals of equality, justice, and judicious treatment of the earth. Bold vision is critical because changing complicated systems requires constant adjustment. You can't go from broken to fixed in a day as you can with a car's brakes. You have to progress without knowing what the journey will look like. We want a fair and sustainable food system is a fine statement to make and quite likely one with which most people would agree, just as most agree that people should have equal access to necessities and opportunity for lives without undue suffering. But charting a single path to that end is impossible. It will happen in small steps, and there will be setbacks, each of which will require adjustment and reinvention. Yet we have to start now. Unchecked, the rulers of all big industries will extract wealth at great cost to nature and to most humans. To the best of their abilities, they will fight for the right to ignore these costs, usually by buying politicians, fighting corrective policies, paying little or no heed to those that do exist, and absorbing any costs that their behavior does create, as long as that behavior remains profitable. Capitalism depends on everlasting economic growth, which is impossible according to both science and common sense. That growth is measured by GDP, which includes all money spent on goods and services. By these standards, war is an asset because it stimulates production. Clear-cutting a forest for farmland creates jobs and goods. Growing corn and soy to produce sellable junk and even the health care costs resulting from that all represent growth. The costs of this growth are then charged against the health and well-being of the majority of humans and of the planet itself. Thus, growth and GDP are terrible measures of well-being. Agriculture is a subset. Its current masters want growth, and to get that, they'd like us to worry over the need to feed 10 billion, the presumed population of Earth in 2050. They want to keep us focused on higher yields at any cost, but this is nothing more than a magician's misdirection. Look over here when the real action is elsewhere. There is already enough food and enough of virtually every other crucial resource for all humans to live well and without ravaging the planet. To let desperation and myths of scarcity guide our vision is to fall into industry's hands. Better to prioritize food security for all and intelligently use the abundance that already exists. Our greatest challenges are to do so with less harm to people and to the environment, to ensure that riches and power and privileges are distributed equitably, and to be guided by morality. It's corny to say the earth will provide, but it's true. What might be called the peasant food system feeds 70% of the world's population. With just 25% of the 
of its agricultural resources. Industrial agriculture uses the other 75% to produce food that reaches fewer than a third of the world's people, in part because half of what's produced by big ag isn't even meant to feed humans. Ignored by state-funded research, fought by global finance, discouraged by most rulers, peasant farming remains more efficient than industrial farming. Were it given the kind of support that's been lent to industry-backed farming, research, subsidies, cheap or free land and such, it could become better still. Instead, those resources are siphoned away from the people who could build a real food system and instead used to ensure profits for industrial agriculture. Some insist that technological innovation will pave the path, that tweaking and improving the current system will save it, and undoubtedly innovation will be useful in building a sustainable system, creating meat without animals or biofuels without corn or other living plant matter, increasing plants' photosynthesis or using genetic engineering wisely to increase crops' nutrition or ability to fix nitrogen or employing various forms of precision agriculture that minimize water and chemicals. But technology won't fix the fundamentally flawed relationship between food, people, and planet. It won't give more people control over their own food, and in almost every case it is legally bound to put profit before true progress regardless of costs. Because despite the disruption rhetoric, most technocrats believe that the system is fundamentally sound. Even those who claim to be working for sustainability are usually greenwashing. And remember, Technological innovations in agriculture are a part of what got us into this mess in the first place. Technology is agnostic, like science in general. When it's used in the interests of a broad community, it can work wonders. When it's used as a profit machine, it can have side effects that are both good and bad. When a pesticide is shown to be harmful, for example... The technocrat's solution is not to figure out how to farm without chemicals, but to create a better pesticide. So, really solid read, some excellent research. Mark Bittman, Animal Vegetable Junk. My next section here takes the same thread. This is called, the book is entitled Monopolized, David Dian, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. Just to continue looking at industrial forms of farming. Department investigation for bribery. In all, over half of the farm bailout money 
went to the richest 10% of farmers. According to a study from the Environmental Working Group, the top 1% of farmers averaged $183,000 in payments. The bottom 80% averaged $5,000. CAFOs also produce disastrous side effects for farm communities. Typically, CAFOs funnel waste through slatted floors into giant open lagoons as big as a football field, making nearby areas nearly uninhabitable from the odors and flies. You can't stand to be outside, Chris Peterson said. The wife can't hang clothes on the clothesline. The inside starts to stink. You get in a car that stinks. You open your suitcase and smell confinement. It's an infringement on individual rights. In election years, Chris likes to take visiting politicians on factory farm tours, advising them to bring an extra suit because the CAFO smell will stick to their clothes. Concentrated farm operations are also vulnerable to disease outbreaks. A bird flu epidemic in Iowa in 2015 led to the killing of 26 million chickens. The healthy ones weren't segregated from the sick. The operations were so vast that it was easier to just kill them all. Outside of Iowa... The biggest hog state is North Carolina with 9.7 million hogs and 10 billion gallons of waste per year. In 1999, Hurricane Floyd flooded hog manure pits running pale pink slurry into nearby rivers and trapping thousands of pigs atop CAFO roofs. The states reached agreement with Smithfield to invest millions of dollars into researching and implementing more environmentally stable alternatives to the lagoons, but changes in the system were not deemed economically feasible. So, in 2018, after Hurricane Florence, 57 more lagoons flooded, breached, or overtopped. The waste contaminated rivers with excrement leading to algae blooms and fish die-offs, and the region has a high water table putting the waste runoff into contact with drinking water. The major response from the swine industry during Hurricane Florence was to frantically increase lagoon capacity by spraying waste in the fields, which got washed into tributaries anyway, and to truck the hogs out of the barns, avoiding the bad visuals of stranded animals. They pulled their commodity out of harm's way and left all the waste in the coastal plain, said Will Hendrick of the Waterkeeper Alliance, an environmental group in North Carolina. Even still, thousands of pigs and over 3 million chickens drowned, buried en masse in close proximity to groundwater. This is almost certain to get worse. In 2019, the U.S. Department of Agriculture lifted most limits on assembly line speeds while cutting government inspectors by 40% and shifting inspections to plant employees. 
The same people afraid to report ailments or to take bathroom breaks will probably not stop production if they find a diseased or infected pig. Even before these changes, pig slaughterhouses were a hygienic nightmare. Inspectors had all of three and a half seconds to verify the health of the carcasses flying past them. Cutting that time down will not improve the food you eat. So there's some cheery information pieces from Monopolized, David Dian, Life in the Age of Corporate Power. The next book I'm going to share just a brief sentence from because I found it to be particularly potent in highlighting much of the misguided ideas that people have about what do we need from our history of manipulating and shaping life through the act of farming and gardening and what aspects of that capacity have crossed a tipping point and become no longer beneficial to our well-being but are actually detrimental to our well-being. So I'll just share with you the section and I think you'll get a sense of the bit of absurdity that is underlying this statement. And it is from a book that is entitled A Brief History of Earth by Andrew H. Knoll. Four billion years in eight chapters. Much of the writing I enjoyed in terms of the earth history, but I found this statement and these associations made by this author in this section I will share with you to be particularly off point in terms of why valuing the history and ability of our ancestors to domesticate plants does not necessarily lead up to the end game products that this author suggests are so wonderful that they are why we owe homage to our ancestors for domesticating plants and animals. So humans began to affect the biological earth early on, and our impact would accelerate through time. A second and ultimately decisive influence began about 11,000 years ago in a crescent that curves northward from Israel and Jordan to Syria, Turkey, and Iraq. Here, people first developed agriculture is one of the places. Learning to grow and harvest figs, barley, chickpeas, and lentils Within, thou within a thousand years, sheep, goats, pigs, and cattle had been domesticated. In fact, agriculture developed independently in several parts of the world, including China 9,000 years ago, Mesoamerica 10,000 years ago, the Andes 7,000 years ago, and parts of Sub-Saharan Africa 6,500 years ago. 
It is currently fashionable to lament this cultural transition as farming replaced hunting and gathering with a life that entailed more work for a less nutritious and less reliable diet. Perhaps so, but those of us who use iPhones, enjoy movies, or survive cancer might see some advantages to the social reorganization precipitated by the agricultural revolution. Fewer people were needed to produce more food, leaving others to pursue art, invention, and commerce. So, you can see why I pulled this passage out, uh, particularly outlandish set of connections made there. Are we really in some way, in a better world because of iPhones, movies, and this capacity to survive cancer? The author might want to ask themselves, perhaps the cause of cancer is in fact the manufacturing of the iPhones and the production of the energy and the entertainment industry that generates movies and manufactures these products are to a large degree not in any way shape or form related to the capacity to domesticate plants and animals or to create a more specialized and sophisticated society. These are petrochemical products that are shown as examples with a disease that is directly linked to the pollution of petrochemicals. These examples given here have nothing to do with the history of farming and gardening and have a great deal to do with the history of petrochemicals, radioactive materials, and warfare. So it's interesting how a well-intended writer wanting to just share anecdotally their creative insights about the connections between broad swaths of history and time with our modern state of affairs misses much of what is the underlying fabric of these temporal dimensions and realities that we are all interrelated and interconnected with. So the next section is from a book that further highlights this kind of subtle, insidious, and elusive way that centralized, industrialized modes have on the shoulders of colonialization and the concentration of wealth and power that went along with colonialization what has accentuated and exacerbated those behaviors has been industrialization and centralization. And so here I'm going to share with you from Gretchen Bake's book. Her name is spelled B-A-K-K-E. And the book is just called The Grid, The Fraying Wires Between Americans and Our Energy Future. Today, 
The tension between individual power production, private plants, and utility-supplied electricity, central stations, is once again becoming the battleground upon which the future of our grid, the form and scope of its infrastructure, is being waged. For most of the intervening years, which is to say the entirety of the 20th century, it seemed natural that power would be made en masse, transmitted by immense high-voltage AC lines and by the late 1960s high-voltage DC lines like the Western Donut as well, to clumps of customers linked one to another and to the greater grid through a massive system of pole-top transformers and local substations where the intensity of transmission scale voltage was stepped down to domestically consumable flows. Until, by the turning of the most recent millennium, this sense of a big public grid as the natural way to make and distribute electricity was, for all intents and purposes, absolute. Even when I spoke to people who were so upset with the inconsistent functioning of utility-provided electricity that they were trying to figure out ways to make their own power for themselves, they nevertheless consistently reiterated the view that electricity was a basic human right. It was something the government should ensure all people had access to, just like potable water or breathable air. Indeed, this is also my view. Uh, just to clarify, it is not my view. Without a doubt, potable water, air, and food way higher in priority than is electricity. And so my view is that, in fact, potable water, air, and a healthy diet take much greater precedent over electricity. We do have a social misunderstanding about the importance of electricity that is very common and widespread. But it is very clear if you sit with these ideas for a moment with me and just say to yourself, do I need to be well-fed, well-bathed, and comfortable more than I need to have lights on or music to listen to? And it's very clear that we all need to have good food, good water, and a comfortable and caring environment and community way before we need to have lights, camera, action, and the glitz and glam that electricity provides. And it's important to create infrastructures and means by which we have water on tap, water that is heated, and a diet and food that is readily available close at hand without a great deal of effort or energy inputs, thereby cutting down on the reason for this misconception that electricity is important is a result of how hyper-dependent we are on a long-distance transportation import-export economy to feed us, to provide us with pressurized water to take that shower, 
And these are all technologies that need to be disentangled from the centralized, industrialized import-export economy and brought home, brought local, and brought down to earth. Back to our reading from The Grid by Gretchen Bake. The most diabolical outcome of a return to a system of private plants, which could easily happen in the next couple of decades in sunny places like Arizona, Hawaii, and Southern California, and to some degree has already happened in Germany, is that it threatens universal access to quality electrical power. If our nation is grounded in the notion of equal opportunity for all, then there cannot be partial or even or unevenly distributed electricity. We cannot continue to be the nation we have become and also endorse or produce haves and have-nots in the world electric. One can go even further to claim that it is not only electricity for all which makes our country strong, nor even electricity priced so low that almost everyone can use it with unbridled avarice, but that we all have access to the same quality of affordable electric power. The poor aren't faced with flickering light bulbs or a ration system that grants them an hour of electric power per day. They are not saddled with prepaid meters like those in South Africa that function only if one has made a deposit on the account before use, while the rich have air conditioning, light internet, and electronic trading systems 24-7. Standardized power for all is a 20th century value that has done much to make America what it is. As private plants come back into vogue, it will be important to keep in mind how shifts in power production from a big grid into many small ones might be integrated into a system that still promises and still provides high-quality electricity to everyone. And in fact, that grid will be a decentralized, localized, regional mosaic that scales up and scales down from individual home systems to town and community systems to regional systems. In the early days of electrification, however, this sense of power as a common good was not how electricity was made or marketed. It was, by definition, an elite product, not for everyone but for those who could afford it. This was not simply because electricity hadn't yet spread to the masses but because the masses were not considered a market worth reaching until later in our nation's history. Some even argue that it wasn't until after the Great Depression that the notion that one could make money by selling lots of cheap things to lots of relatively poor people made any inroads at all. Most, however, agree that the idea of a mass market or consumer culture came about in part because utility company entrepreneurs needed new ways to make a profit from electricity. GE, originally Edison General Electric, started out as a power company. It was only with time that it became an appliance company, renting and then later selling people stuff that needed to be plugged in to work. Money was made twice over, first with the sale of the refrigerator, and second with the ongoing sale of electric power necessary to make it run. 
This shift in vision involved both imagining a whole new set of demands beyond lighting for elites for which electricity might be used and seeing a whole new population, everyone as a potential market. Not elite light, but popular light, popular heat, and popular power. In other words, the notion of consumer or mass culture in which all people are promised access to all things was in part the result of the universalization of electricity and not the other way around. A standardized electric current came first with the construction of the Niagara Generating Station at Niagara Falls in the early 1890s, while the veritable explosion of home appliances and the idea of a mass market for them did not emerge until the early 1940s. The standardized plug and outlet that made this consumer revolution possible was not achieved until the unfortunate year of 1929, after which point the Great Depression decimating our lives and livelihoods, very few people in America were in the market for domestic technologies of any kind. So I think that is where I will wrap up my podcast for you today and I'd like to synopsize that point from Gretchen Bake in the Grid so powerful to realize that in fact it is only since the 1940s that we are talking about mass production consumer culture syndromes getting rolled out at a national scale and at a global scale and how much of the useless junk that is polluting our lives, our children's minds and the poor creatures of the ocean is a phenomenon that came about only in the last 60 to 70 years and that before that a vast array of the contamination and quality of life issues that we're dealing with today did not exist and can be eliminated by our collective social will to reclaim our autonomy, our integrity, our children's lives, our families' lives by being together, by living more appropriately for our true needs, our real needs, which are to have excellent vital, nutritious food coming from close at hand, grown with love and care. And to be together with each other in nature, around a campfire, listening to the frogs at night, watching the stars, watching the sunrise, enjoying a beautiful sunset, and breathing the rich scents of the lichens on the pine trees as we do our forest bathing walks through the Adirondacks and the Catskills and sitting next to a stream and a waterfall and a beautiful babbling brook fountain in a city park fed by rainwater, powered by children on bicycle pumps in a playground. I look forward to more of this experience with you on this planet, celebrating life, enjoying the abundance that the earth provides, and connecting 
with each other, with our children, and providing the experience that future generations are going to thank us for. Thank you for listening, gentle listeners, and I look forward to any questions, conversations that you would like to have. Drop me a line. Stay in touch. Andrew Faust, Permaculture, New York.